Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Ronnie. It's my privilege and honor to bring you God's Word. Merry Christmas. Hopefully you had a good holiday season. Um, it's good to see you all again. This is the last time we'll be together uh, for the year. So I got to make a funny dad joke at the end and I'll say, see you next year. Yes, funny dad jokes. So we, we took a break during the Christmas season throughout the month of December to go through a series looking at the theme of God being with us. We looked at that Emmanuel. It was the Advent season, that hopeful expectation of the Messiah, the Mashiach, Jesus Christ coming and fulfilling the prophecies of old and even the hopeful expectation we have looking forward to his second return. We're going to return now and go back into the book of 1 Corinthians that we were going through as a church looking at saints in the city. We're picking up where we left off in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there's some strategically placed around the room for you to use during the service. And if you don't have one at all, at home or on your phone or anything like that, that's actually our gift to you. So you can take that home and uh, enjoy that. That is the word of God for you. It's going to be 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 23. And for any note takers, uh, I thought I'd do a simple title. The whole aim and goal of Gospel Community Churches, Caleb said earlier, is to make Jesus a hero. It's, it's kind of the, the lifeblood of our church. Our purpose and, and goal is to lift him up and make him the hero. And that's not done through lifting up any one person, but every single person in the church through the different service opportunities, whether it's greeting, hospitality, the kids' ministry, leading the gospel community groups throughout the week, we're all attempting to exalt Jesus and make him the hero of the, of the story, because he truly is. And so today's sermon title, super easy, is going to be to keep Jesus the hero. We're keeping Jesus the hero in what we do. I'll provide a little context before we jump in, but I'll, we'll go ahead and read the verse. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 10 through 23, I'll go ahead and read it, and we'll, we'll dive in. 1 Corinthians 3.10. According to the, this is Paul speaking to the church in Corinth. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care of how he builds upon it, for, one, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Let's pray. 
God, thank you for this time that we get to come together and meet in this building and, and lift you up and make you the hero. I pray that as we examine this text and some of the problems that the church, of Corinthian, the church in Corinth had gotten caught up in and the issues that Paul is addressing here would have uh, practical use in our own lives as we examine some of the idols that we've set up in our heart, some of the things that we are worshiping instead of you. I pray that you would uh, bring conviction and, and bring growth and that we, we could see in this time that you are the hero, that you would remind us of this throughout our weeks, and that we wouldn't build anything upon the foundation of Christ that is contrary to the gospel with which you've given us. We love you, God, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, some quick context, because we've been out of the book of 1 Corinthians for quite a while, at least over a month. If you remember... This is the Apostle Paul, a man who for a time was persecuting the Christian church pretty hard. Even led to the death of some Christians. He was coming after them, arresting them, having them beaten. But then encountered the resurrected Christ and was converted to Christianity and became one of the greatest evangelists, um, church planners ever to have lived. And so God had commissioned him to go out and do this work. And now one of the churches that he had planted previously, he is writing them a letter addressing some of the issues that they had got caught up in. Now, the, ch the church in Corinth had gotten caught up in some of the cultural practices that were going on around them. And that's not to say that the Christian church or even people in it can't get involved in cultural practices. It's not that all of them are bad or there's anything inherently bad about something that comes from the, the, the world outside of the Christian church. But it's the specific cultural practices that they adopted were creating all kinds of divisions inside that church. There was a practice of rhetoric where they would go on and on about their favorite teachers and who's the smartest and there would be almost a competition and creating divisions amongst the church where they would split, where they could no longer fellowship with one another because of the different men that they were following. What's interesting about these divisions, we're in chapter 3 right now, but if you go back and look at chapter 1, the very third subdivision, if you notice in your Bibles, if, you're, if you have one of the ones around the room, it, it may change based on translation, but a lot of Bibles have subheadings over the different paragraphs. That's not part of the original inspired text that the authors had written down, but those are something that the translators put in there to help you kind of understand what's about to be talked about. They're setting up a schema for you to be able to better understand the, the following passage. Chapter 3, the title in most of our Bibles is probably Divisions in the Church. But if you go back and look at chapter 1, the third section down, it says divisions in the church. It's the exact same title. So here in chapter 3, we have the second time that Paul is addressing this issue. This issue. It was such a big deal inside the Corinthian church that he felt he had to address it again. Because people were not putting Jesus as the hero. They were putting Apollos or Paul or Cephas or all these different teachers and people. Instead of working together to exalt God, and that's what Paul is trying to commission them to do now. Before we get into Paul's description of the work he's doing now and even the work that we should be doing, uh, we'll take a quick look at verse 10 in the opening nine words right there before he talks about the building that he does. He says, according to the grace of God given to me. Now, now I have to apologize. I'm probably going to be moving really, really quick here because honestly, 10 to 23, I could preach an entire sermon on almost every single verse in here. It's very theologically rich and there's a lot going on here. But I think these first nine words are probably the most important thing in this entire section. 
What's interesting here is that the work that Paul is about to talk about doing, he says that that is a grace of God given to him. Even the work that he's doing. We've talked about grace many times. Uh, Every single Sunday, hopefully, we're up here talking about grace in the gospel. But grace is unmerited favor or unearned favor. There's nothing you could do to earn it. What's interesting about that, we all just came out of the Christmas season. So most of us probably received some kind of a, a gift. And what's interesting about that is Paul even describes the gospel, the good news of salvation, as a gift gift. He even goes into great detail explaining the differences between something like a gift and wages so that nobody would be confused. If you could imagine how confusing it would have been on Christmas Day if somebody gave you a gift and you went around to immediately hand them 20 bucks or try to pay for the gift, they would have been like, well, what are you doing? It would have been confusing because you don't pay for a gift. It's something freely given to you. You see, the good works that Paul does in building God's kingdom is a grace of God given to him as a gift and not something he did to earn the grace of God. Now, this is something that the culture a lot of time flips on its heads and confuses about Christianity. I am a, I'm a terrible salesman. I, I technically work in sales, and every single one of my office partners will probably wholeheartedly agree I'm in the worst one in the office. I'm surprised I still have a job. I've been doing it for six years now. I'm really, really bad at it. Um, so even, I, I'm not very whimsical in the way I sell stuff or, or communicate ideas, I think. And, and so I talk about sometimes uh, when I'm evangelizing or telling other people about the gospel, I kind of have a little cheap tactic that I stole from somebody else. Is I'll ask a simple question. And I just say, have you ever heard of the Christian message? And based on whether they say yes or no, I say, well, well what do you think it is? And I get them to tell me, and then I, I'll, I'll tell them or something like that. Totally stole that from somebody else. What is interesting about that is of all the people that I've done with that with, it was only one time that I ever actually heard the true gospel that is clearly communicated in Scripture explained rightly. Every other time I got, basically you do good things and you get to heaven. That is, over 90% of the people that I've brought that question to, it's be a good person and you'll get into heaven. This is a caricature that the, tr- the culture has created about Christianity, and it's, it's honestly an easy straw man to knock down. Uh, the culture's even done this. I don't watch this show, but some of you have probably heard of True Detective on HBO. Anybody familiar with that? No? It's got Matthew McConaughey in it and Woody Harrelson. I'm seeing, like, no heads going. I'll, I'll describe the scene in which this, this takes place, but... Uh, Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson's character in one of the scenes, they're at the back of a church listening to a sermon being preached. And they're having some back and forth about religion. Woody Harrelson's kind of uh, defending the idea of religion in general, I guess. And Matthew McConaughey's character is kind of cutting it down. And one of the things he says um, actually got cut up into a little clip and was shared on social media many, many times. And it's funny, this is what the culture thinks Christianity is. So they're talking back and forth, and this is what Matthew McConaughey's character says about Christianity. He says to Woody Harrelson's character, if the only thing keeping a person decent is the expectation of divine reward, then brother, that person is a piece of blank. Interesting, Woody Harrelson, Matthew McConaughey actually says he's a Christian, so these aren't you know, his words or anything. I don't want to put words in his mouth. He was an, he's an actor acting out a scene from a director. But it's interesting that this is 
the culture's understanding of Christianity. This was shared many, many times on social media, and people thought, oh, that man, that's a good dig against Christians. Yeah, you guys are only nice because you think somehow it'll inherit you some kind of eternal reward. But that's, that is not the gospel. That is so contrary to the gospel at all. There is nothing we could do to earn it. Even the good stuff we do, whatever service you do to the church, whatever ministry you work in, whatever love you demonstrate towards another person is in no way inheriting or obtaining eternal salvation. But these are gifts that God has freely given us. And Paul even says that here in this passage. That the good that I'm doing, this is a gift, this is a grace of God that he's given me. Nothing that I'm doing is earning me God's salvation. One more time I'll say before we move on, whatever good you do as a Christian is not a means of obtaining salvation, but a result of the salvation that has already been freely given to us in Christ. Not a means of earning it. Let's continue on. There's a lot to be said about just those nine words that Paul opens up with. He goes on to say he's like a skilled master builder. He laid a foundation and someone's building upon it. And none of us have to be a contractor to understand the importance of foundations. Uh, None of us were born yesterday, and even now we're all in a building that has a foundation. We've walked into many buildings in our lives. And the importance, uh, probably for a contractor, I would only assume, I've never been in contracting work, but it's, it's probably incredibly important that you build a decent foundation because lives are literally at stake. If you build something that, I mean, this building, what is it, three or four stories tall? If it was built on a faulty foundation, there are many people that come here day to day. And should this thing collapse or give underweight under a, uh, a faulty foundation, it could cause a lot of problems. And it's the same thing in the gospel. Any foundation laid, we also want to ask, is this going to last? We want it to be able to last a long time. Uh, Jesus even speaks to this in Matthew 7 through 24 when he talks about the fool and the wise man. And what does the fool do? He builds his house on sand. Something shifting that changes constantly, and that's a, a great picture of culture and ideas and ideologies and worldviews and practices and all these different things that are constantly shifting. It's so funny, Nicole and I were going through some foster care classes uh, because we had, to, uh, we, we had to in order to adopt my niece, and, and it was, it's not that I had a problem with what they were saying. I disagreed, and that's fine. It's okay to disagree with their, their parental practices. It just bothered me the arrogance with which they said it. It was like, I know everything here in 2019. It's like, okay, people have been around for a very long time. How are you saying that just you here now in this time knows everything? It's constantly fluctuating and changing. Jesus says in Matthew 24 that the, the much, or Matthew 7, that the much wiser thing would be to place yourself on the firm foundation of God's rock. So Paul is talking about this, this foundation that he carefully laid and that we need to be careful in how we build off of that and what we're putting on top of Jesus Christ is that foundation. And the reason why we should take such care is in verse 11. Basically, we don't want to be wasting our time because Paul says no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. This is true salvifically, uh, philosophically, but I, don't, I, don't, I won't get into that. That's a whole other long discussion. But there are other foundations that can, we can suppose to build or seem like somebody has laid, but really these are nothing but vapor and vanities. They appear to have some kind of substance, but there's really nothing there. The only true foundation that can be laid is Jesus Christ. And Jesus says as much himself in John 14, 6, 
I've said it before multiple times when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, universal negative, no one can come to the Father except me. And Acts 4.12, they repeat it again. And there is salvation in no one else, that same universal negative, no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So any other foundation built is ultimately vapor and meaningless without the power for salvation. 1 Timothy 2.5 says the same thing. For there is one God, one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. And there is no other. And there's a, there's a lot to unpack there just in what Paul says. But he goes on to talk about if anyone builds on that foundation and he gives some different things that you could build off of, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. And these could be all different kinds of things that Paul here is um, talking about the the gold the silver precious stones wood hay straw things that are eternal and going to last a long time and and things that'll be quickly burned up or blown away but he talks about and this is i think something practical for all of us is we're because each one of us is building off the foundation of christ if you call yourself a christian in some way throughout your life you are building upon that foundation whether through your ministry in the church and how you're helping other believers grow or even your your own spiritual maturity yourself If you're a parent, you have children with which you're going to disciple and grow and teach different things about the gospel, and what kind of work are we laying on top of the foundation of Jesus Christ is the question that Paul is addressing here, and the consequences of both of them either as we go through verses 13, I believe, to 15. Paul says in verse 13, each one's work will become manifest, become made known for the day, if you notice in your Bibles that day is capitalized, will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Now, I don't think fire in this passage is like hellfire or something like that, and you'll, uh, you'll see why in a second. I think this fire is testing. It's trial. It, it's the kind of refining fire that takes uh, some kind of precious metal and turns it into something useful. So he goes on, it will be reeled by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Whether it's good or bad, this fire, the purpose of this fire is for testing. And the testing, what I believe it'll look like is just trial, suffering, temptation, all different kinds of things. James 1, 3 through 4 kind of talks about this a little bit. The testing and what it produces in our own faith and our walk with God. He says it produces steadfastness. He even says, if you look back one verse in James 1, 2, to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And it's because God is doing the work. And it's easy to read that and say, yes, intellectually, sure, I go through challenges and difficult circumstances. But the truth is, as we're closing the year 2019, I'm sure for many of us it has not been easy. That there's probably been a plethora of difficult things that we've all had to go through. Rick has mentioned some of his own personal difficulties that he's gone through. But even speaking through with uh, some of you and knowing some of our lives uh, or just the different things that we're struggling through, I know that 2019 was not an easy year for the church as a whole. Even Nicole and I have been through, going through litigation since July, we were just talking about it, it had been going on, and we just finally uh, received news that everything is finally closed off with that. When we were going through the court cases and had to leave our dog in the care of other people, we came home to a sick dog who died a couple days later in the vet hospital in my arms, and This is a difficult year, all these things going on. We went from two kids to four. And so I can say, yes, count it all joy when you meet various trials, uh, but it's it's another thing to go through it, absolutely. But these are 
These are comforting truths to know that God is sovereign. He has a plan as he's working all these things together that it's not purposeless. There is no purposeless evil in this world or any purposeless suffering that God has a plan for all of it to one day when the curtain is pulled back and it even here in this passage mentions the day that all these things will become manifest and we'll see it all for the glory of God what he's truly done behind the curtain through all this stuff. You know, Paul even says we see through a mirror dimly right now but one day it'll all be revealed in its glory. The day, I mentioned it's, it's capitalized. I think the reason why day is capitalized in that is because he's talking about, it, it's a common theme throughout scripture when it's talking about the day. It's, it's that final day where God basically pulls back the curtain and it's his final day where all things kind of, you know, the kingdom's been brought. It's been inaugurated but not fully consummated. But in that final day where God uh, comes back in judgment, we kind of see all these things and he's talking about the foundation that we've built off. We'll finally see the fruits of all of our labor whether or not we were building upon that foundation of Jesus Christ and the fruit that bore from that. Because Paul talks about in the next verse of a reward. He says that the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. I could be wrong. Reward could be um, something, something else. But I think from the text that the reward would, is something, when it's talking about the fruit of ministry, the different things that we're doing and building off that foundation, I truly think that this reward is something like people coming to the Christian faith. Our own spiritual growth. That reward would be the fruit of building off that foundation of the gospel, not taking it and distorting it and making it into something else, but actually bringing new people into the faith, coming uh, to know Christ as their Savior, and then even our own spiritual maturity as we look and reflect on the gospel more and more and come to believe it even more and trust in God all the more, that that will be the reward that comes through building off of that foundation. But if what we've been building is inconsistent with the gospel, I think verse 15 is exploring that. Because if Paul says if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Because he, say, because he says he himself will be saved, I absolutely think Paul, Paul here is addressing Christians. But he's just talking about the different work that we could be doing, different kingdoms that we could be trying to build on top of that gospel. You see, doing anything other than God's way always creates some kind of difficulties. Whether practically in our lives, and this, this is just true. There is a, there's a famous Christian apologist, maybe some of you have heard of him, uh, Greg Kokel. He has these awesome little short videos he does in Stand to Reason. But he had a book, I think a couple years ago, that he wrote called The Story of Reality. And it was all about the redemptive narrative. It was the story of the Bible. But I love that he called it the story of reality because that's exactly what it is. Whether you believe that God exists and this is his world that he is sovereignly governing doesn't change the fact that it is so. And it, and it, it manifests itself practically. If you go around living a life of lying, stealing, cheating, uh, uh, committing adultery, raping, murdering, doing all these things that God has committed not to, just practically speaking, life's not going to go well for you. In, in, in almost any government, any system anywhere in the world, life's going to be difficult when you don't do life a way in which God has prescribed in Scripture. It just becomes incredibly difficult for you. 
It's also true when building off this foundation, though, when Paul, in many of his letters, uh, brings us back to the gospel and draws us to the gospel and points us to the gospel and say, it's this message that we're communicating, it's this message that we need to build and center our lives around. When we go and do something different, we're creating all different kinds of difficulties and we will suffer loss. There's work that we'd be burned up and wasted. And many people do this. One of the most popular ways that I've seen it done is the prosperity gospel. And if you looked up the number one sermon on YouTube, it is uh, the worst sermon I've ever heard in my life. Christ isn't mentioned in there at all. It's all about how you have the power in yourself to be young, beautiful, and wealthy, and you need to look in the mirror and say, I am all these things every single morning. And, it, you know, it, it's in a church that calls itself Christian, and, but Christ isn't mentioned at all. It's just kind of taking Jesus and using him in a way to propagate their own message and platform. And we have to be careful with what we're, we're winning people to. One of my favorite theologians, James White, always says, you got to be careful because what you win them with is what you win them to. And if it's a message of health, wealth, prosperity, and eternal youth, the second anyone enters any kind of trial or temptation, they're gone immediately. It's a very shallow faith. It's not one that says, come and die. You see, the gospel's about one man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. This is what Paul's kind of addressing here overall as he's going through the passage. Many of the people, have, as I said before, they attach themselves onto these different teachers, and Paul is trying to call them back to the gospel. I don't think that Apollos or Cephas or Paul were in, intentionally, especially Paul, was not intentionally creating all these followers uh, that would look and give them celebrity status or even God status or sit there and worship them. I think it was just our nature is to, as John Calvin said, our hearts are basically idol factories. We're constantly pumping out different things to worship. I think it was just the people were doing that with these men. I don't think there was anything uh, malicious in their intent and what they were doing. They were seeking to to build God's kingdom and go out and plant churches and grow stuff. But it was uh, different people who had basically ascended them into God's status. And I got to think that Paul, when he's writing this to the church in Corinth, I think he very much has Acts 14 in mind. If you go back and look at Acts 14, when Paul and Barnabas are, are witnessing there, uh, they, per, they had healed somebody and immediately people were bringing out sacrifices to worship to Paul. And this was incredibly blasphemous to Paul. He tears his robe. He's like, what are you guys doing? This is insane. And so I think Paul very much has this idea. As he's, he's admonishing the Corinthians to stop doing this, to stop putting these men on a pedestal, to stop worshiping, that these are just gifts that God has given the church to different people to exposit the scriptures and help walk them and disciple them through different things, not, not people to name drop in different situations to make us seem more intelligent or wise. Now, admittedly, verse 16 and 17 can be a little confusing. As we go from the work that Paul is doing, he's talking about the building upon the foundation, keeping that core um, gospel centrality in what we're doing and being careful with what we build off of. And then immediately, there's even a paragraph break in your Bibles. And as it goes into 16, it says, Do you not know? This is a rhetorical question. So it must be helping to build the argument previously. So he says, do you not know that you're God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? 
So somehow this has to be attached to the preceding clause because it's, it's continuing the argument as he goes through. I think when Paul is saying this, when he's saying, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? That there's, there's an understanding of the Old Testament you kind of need to have here. You see, there was, there was the tabernacle as Israel went throughout the wilderness where God's presence would dwell within that tabernacle. It was like a, basically a temple tent that could be moved. And then there was the temple that Solomon, King Solomon built in Israel uh, that God's presence also dwelled again. And now Paul is talking about you are God's temple and his spirit dwells in you. And, you, and he re- reiterates this at the end of verse 17. He says again, you are that temple. Well, why is he saying this and what does it have to do with worshiping these other men? I think he has Second Chronicles 33 very much in mind when writing this to them. There was a king in the Old Testament, King Manasseh, who was a very evil king. He was terrible. Did all kinds of terrible stuff. The tradition of the Talmud, this isn't in scripture, but the tradition in the Talmud is that he actually sawed the prophet Isaiah in half. Very wicked king. But one of the worst things he did is he actually brought idols into the temple. He set up a bunch of little false gods in the temple of God. Amongst, in God's presence, he set up a bunch of altars and fake gods. That is incredibly blasphemous. The more you think about it, the more blasphemy it becomes. In putting all these false gods before the true God of Israel, he was saying, you know what, God, you're just as much of a God as all these other gods. And these fake gods that were created with human hands through the art and imagination of men are just as much a God as you are. It's a, it's a slap in God's face. And that was incredibly offensive to people, uh, offensive to people who loved God and worshipped as, as the only true God. This is even true in Jesus' time and shortly after because when speaking to the disciples, Jesus warns them in Matthew 24. He says, when the abomination of desolation, you see it coming into the temple, head for the mountains because it's about to go down. He's talking about wars about to break out and he gives them a warning. And when that happened in AD 70, that's exactly what the early Christian church did. And thank, thank God that he gave them that warning because if it had not been so, many Christians would have died. But they flee from Jerusalem, when they saw the abomination of desolation being brought into the temple, it was these idols that they were setting up of Roman gods. And war did break out. The connection here is that God's temple, the connection between God's temple, idols, and ourselves, is that something fundamentally changed about our nature when we became Christians. What happened at the cross was a lot of things. The grace of God given to us, uh, the, the eternal salvation earned for us on our behalf through Jesus Christ, simply through faith in him, nothing we did to earn it. That's a beautiful thing, but another thing that changed about our nature is we are now God's dwelling place. The spirit of God dwells in us. Paul even says this in this passage, but the interesting thing about that is that there should be no other idols in God's temple. There should be no other God inside of our hearts, and that's why Paul is bringing this imagery and drawing their minds back to the God's temple here. You see, I'm sure for many of us, it's not Apollos. It's not Cephas. It's not Paul. But it may very well be Aaron Donald or Drew Brees, Chris Hemsworth or Bradley Cooper, Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg or Donald Trump. If you have no idea who those three are, you live a very blessed life. Ignorance is bliss. Maybe if it's even someone godly like R.C. Sproul or Tim Keller. What do all those men have in common? Not a single one of them deserves the place of preeminence in your heart. 
for multiple reasons. One, they cannot save you. They don't have the power in themselves to save you. And they'll eventually let you down. And I don't, I don't know every single person in this room perfectly, but I'm guessing none of you know them either personally, and they don't know you. And despite the last two Christians I mentioned, I'm sure if they knew you, they probably wouldn't even care about you. You see, every single human makes a terrible idol. Even in our marriages, the people closest to us, my wife will tell you, I make a terrible God. I may seem like a good husband up on stage or what little of you know of me, but spend five minutes with my wife and ask her what she, what she really thinks about me and you'll see that I make a terrible savior. I am not a good functional savior. And that's why we, we constantly look and point back to Jesus and say he is the hero. He is the only one that can save. Paul goes back and he talks about wisdom again because I mentioned this rhetoric that they were doing. He says, you really want to be wise in verses 18 and 19? He says, abandon, abandon the wisdom of this world. If, if you missed it, the last time I preached in Corinthians, I had some slides up of some uh, philosophers and some of the really ridiculous things that they've said over the years that you know, the culture grabs onto. Oh, man, that's really good. And I just exposed the, the stupidity of it all. And it's true. A lot of the secular wisdom that's kind of brought forward on the face of it, it's just these one-liners. And, you know, in America, we love our one-liners since the 80s, you know. Uh, I'll be back. Different stuff like that. Like, we love one-liners. And these quick little quips and stuff that the culture throws out that people attach themselves onto and say, oh, that's pretty clever. But what's interesting, Paul, in verse 19 and 20, quotes uh, the Old Testament twice here, saying that he catches the wise in their craftiness, and the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. And that word, Futile is very proper in that context because it is futile. It's foolish. It's vapor. It's vanity of vanities. Ultimately, is you know, oftentimes, unfortunately, most of us were probably, you know, raised in public education. But even if it was private school, for the most part, you're probably more taught as you grow up what to believe and what to think, not how to think, and some of the more foundational truths. But as you begin to expose them, you see the vaporlessness of all these secular ideologies, these worldviews. There's a lot to say there. Just the, the vaporness of it all. But going into the verse 21, 23, we'll close with this. It's one passage that, it's uh, these three verses Paul kind of brings together as a closing idea as he, as he finishes this argument in this passage. He again in 21 says, let no one boast in men. I think I've clearly explained why. There's no one man we should be boasting in other than the God-man Jesus Christ. None of these people can save us. Ultimately, they never did anything incredible enough that, are, that is worthy of our worship. And he says, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death, present, future, all are yours. You see, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, <clears throat> any other great mind in the Christian church that God has given the church, and we have many brilliant men and women today that are studying the scriptures, pouring themselves out, learning the original languages, the Hebrew, the Greek, studying the original manuscripts and all this stuff so that we could have access to some of this knowledge and understand God better. And there's people that have written great practical things to help us in our own uh, Christian living. But these are all ours, it says, gifts that God has given us, not people to be worshipped. Well, Paul goes so much further. He says, the world, life, Death, present, future, all of this is yours. And why would he say that? Why would he say all these things are yours? It's because you are Christ and Christ are God's. I talked about a couple things already that happened 
with the gospel. The grace of God in all the different ways this manifests itself, but one of the truly amazing ways that it has is that we've also become heirs of the only king, the true king. We are sons and daughters of the Most High. We have all these things because God has them and we are his. That's one of the fundamental things that's changed about our identity at the cross is that we are now children of God. Sons and daughters, we've been adopted into his kingdom. He has said, you are mine now. And all these spiritual blessings that were given over to Christ, the nations and everything, God says, these are yours. These are now gifts that I've given my church, my people. Another beautiful aspect of the gospel that we get to celebrate and rejoice in. All the ways in which God has been incredibly gracious to his people. So as we go throughout the the year of 2020, this is just something to to start examining as we close the year. What different people are we worshiping and putting as the place of preeminence in our heart? What, What kind of idols have we erected that are stopping us from experiencing communion with God? And recognizing, uh, and that sign's not going to change as we move into 2020. It's all about making Jesus the hero. And that's the whole point of the gospel is that it's not anything that we had done or any one person is going to save us from our sins, from that, that problem, the brokenness between us and God. But it's fully Jesus that fully reconciled us and not to any one man. And inside the temple, which is our bodies now, the only person that should stand up as king over our hearts is Jesus, the king of kings. Amen? Let's pray. God, I thank you for being our king. There are so many things that we look out and see people worship and give their lives to. Vapor, vaporless things. And the struggles and the difficulty that these things bring when they fall and fail us. Thank you that you are our king, an eternal king. One that's not here for a day and then gone tomorrow, but an eternal king that we can place our hope in. Infinite not finite like anything in this world. Thank you that you've called us and changed us, pulled us out of our foolishness and brought us into worshiping you, the only true God. Thank you for the gospel. There was nothing we could have done to recognize our own foolishness, to work ourselves into obe- uh, a right relationship with you. There was no amount of obedience that we could have done, that it was all Christ and his obedience. Thank you for sending him in our place. Let us celebrate that today. Let us celebrate that as we close the year and on into eternity, God. Thank you for all you've done for us. Amen.